If you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look once again at verse number 15 this morning, simply because there was so much in this verse that it could take us probably many, many months just to unfold all that's here. And so this morning, I want you to look at your life in light of what the verse says. Now listen carefully. So many times, it is easy for us to read a verse and after reading that verse, we read into the verse what we think we believe instead of letting the verse tell us what we need to believe. We need to understand that. So many times we read the scriptures through a lens that may or may not be correct. The verse must stand on its own in the context of which it was written, in the book in which it was written, in line with the entirety of Scripture. And so as we examine our lives today, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that before you eat and drink of the Lord's table, you are to examine your life. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5, that we are to test ourselves, prove ourselves, to see whether or not Jesus is even in us. No better time to do that than on Communion Sunday. And so when we looked at Hebrews 9, verse number 15, last week, a verse that says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. We told you last week that a Jewish audience would understand this to some degree. Because on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, they would do it retroactively. In other words, they would do it for the previous year. Because there were so many sins that were committed that every person that was there sometimes didn't know the sins they committed. And so when they offered atonement, it was for the sins retroactively throughout the previous year. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that when Christ offered his one-time sacrifice, he offered it retroactively to all those who were called. In other words, there was a redemption provided for those in the Old Testament that were called. There was not a redemption on Calvary for those in the Old Testament that were not called. Why? Because they were already in hell. You can't purchase them out of hell. They're already there. So we offered uh, redemption for the transgressions of those who are called so that they might collect the eternal inheritance that was theirs from the very beginning. And this becomes a, a staggering thought. It becomes a monumental truth. It, it leads us into the, the depths of the doctrine of, of the living God. So that somehow we might begin to understand who God is and, and what he's done. Because we asked the question last week, are you one of the ones that are the called? And how do you know you're one of the ones that are called? And we told you that, it, it, number one, it, it commences with, with God himself. 
The call of God commences with God. It comes only through the gospel, and it's conceived by grace. We looked at that last week. With that, point number four, it compels us to be grateful. It compels us to be grateful. Listen to what Paul says. And I love what the Lord is doing because what we're studying on Wednesday night, last week, ties into this morning, ties into this next Wednesday, ties into next Sunday morning. God and his sovereignty put all these together for us so that we'd be covering these verses at the same time. And it says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. You see, there's something that compels me to give thanksgiving to God, to be grateful to him. Why? Because he chose me from the beginning. And he called me to himself that I might experience the joys, not just of his presence on earth, but for all eternity, to be saved from my sin. That's a staggering thought. To think of the fact that God, in eternity past, wrote the names of all those who would believe in him Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8, in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, we know that he was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that. And so because he was, he would write the names of those whom he would call because he chose them in the Lamb's book of life. And some would say, well, wait a minute, wait a second. You mean to tell me that God would choose some and not others? Yes. And you would say probably, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. So let me offend you this morning. You are not the author of fairness you're not the author of rightness. You're not the author of justice. You're just you. God is the author of that which is fair, right, just, true, and pure because he's holy. So if he is, shall not the righteous judge of all the earth do that which is just? Genesis 18.25. That's right before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The righteous judge of all the earth shall always do right. God never does wrong, and he never shows partiality. And the scripture is very clear upon that. But the scripture is also very clear that there are some that are called, many that are called, but there are a few that are chosen. And we look at that and we hear that, and some of us adore that, other of us abhor that. We hate it. Others love it. But just think about this for a second. We really try to reason all that God does in salvation. 
We try to, with our minds, intellectually think and digest everything that God said. But let me tell you something. Be aware of this. That when the fall happened, when sin took place in Genesis chapter 3, it affected your ability to reason. It affected your intellect. In other words, you're not as smart as you think you are. And your ability to reason is not really that acute. It's not that sharp. Because it fell into sin way back in Genesis chapter 3. So for us to think that somehow we can reason in our minds what God is doing and how he does it, what's right and what's fair, we got to be very careful that we don't assault the character of God and blaspheme his name because we think he didn't do something right or fair or just or, or true. That very easily happens in Christendom. We must be very, very careful. Do I understand that for me to be saved, I must believe the gospel? Yes. That I must repent of my sins? Yes. That I must turn to Christ and take up my cross and follow him without reservation? Yes, I understand that. I have no question about that. Do I understand that, yes, God gave me the power and the grace to believe, to repent, to have the faith to understand and to follow him. Yes. But can I harmonize those two together? No. I can't. I cannot harmonize human volition and divine election. But once I try to do that, I'll mess both of them up. I must learn to rest in what God has said and that be enough. I must believe what God says in his word. I can't take my belief and put it into the scriptures. I must believe what the scriptures say. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. We must not only believe the scriptures when we happen to agree with them, we must believe them when we do not. We must believe them when we do not understand and if at a point they seem to us to be saying something that implies that there is unrighteousness in God, we say at once, that is impossible. There is something wrong with me. See that? If I think that God's unfair or God's unjust or God's not right, guess what? That's my fault. There's something wrong with me. Nothing wrong with God. He's very pure, true, and holy. So when I read a verse like Hebrews 9, 15, and I realize that our Lord credited, credited forgiveness toward Old Testament saints, that they might have full access into the presence of Almighty God. Once he died on Calvary's cross, he could forgive them because he was a righteous God, knowing that the blood of bulls and goats never takes away sin. And yet God could forgive those people on credit that he had called to himself because he would die for them on Calvary's tree and then give them full access into glory like he would all of us this side of the cross. That's just staggering to realize the magnitude of God. And so I'm not gonna be able to reason with you this morning. Pastors should never reason with anybody. We don't do that. Why? 
because our reason is flawed. Your reason is flawed. Why would I do something that's completely sinful and flawed? Why don't I just let God's word speak for itself? That's all I have to do, let God's word speak. And then you're held accountable, and I'm held accountable, to what God's word says. So let me show you what God's word says. We know that 2 Peter 1.10 says we are to make certain of God's calling and choosing of you. We know God called us because God chose us. The reason he chose us is because in eternity past, he predestined us to be sons in his kingdom. He wrote our names down in the Lamb's book of life before we ever existed. And so therefore, we trust in what God says. And so when the Bible says these words in Matthew chapter 11, verse number, yes, Matthew 11, I know this verse, I drew a blank, verse number 27, sorry, says this. We'll start with verse number 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Nobody knows the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal Him to them. It's impossible. That's what the verse says. Interesting, what's the next verse say? Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have divine election in one verse. You have human volition in the next verse. And the two are mirrored together in Scripture as you read through it, but yet so impossible to harmonize in our frail, fallen minds. Many are called, few are chosen. Listen to what it says in John 10, verse number 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. I know my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Acts chapter 13, verse number 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord 
And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They rejoiced because as many as had been appointed, had been predetermined, believed. They rejoiced in what God was doing. If you go over to Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was afraid that he was the only guy left. And the Lord says, hold on, Elijah. I've got 7,000 others just like you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have a remnant that I am saving that I have called, that I have chosen. So Paul says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's grace, gracious choice. But it If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Wow. Those who were chosen obtained eternal life. But those who were not, God hardened their hearts. Remember what we said on Wednesday night? If you missed it, too bad. But I'm going to repeat it to you, all right? In damnation, God responds to human choice. In salvation, man responds to divine choice. And that's the way it always is presented in Scripture. Always presented the same way. And why do people go to hell? They go to hell, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse number 8, because they do not know God and they will not obey the gospel of God. Why do they go to hell? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because they do not love the truth so as to be saved. It's not that they don't know the truth. They do. It's not that they don't know God. They do. Romans 1, everybody knows God and everybody knows the truth. They just suppress the truth. But the reason they don't come to Christ is simply because they don't love the truth. Why did you come to Christ? Because you love the truth. The truth incarnate and the truth inspired. You can't separate the two. You love the truth. How great is that? And so Paul says there's a remnant. Because we know that all Israel is not going to be saved, right? We know that God is going to allow some of them to perish. But salvation is of the Jews. 
And Paul is speaking about a remnant that he's called out for himself, that he's chosen for himself. And those he didn't choose, he hardens their hearts. Like Pharaoh hardened his heart when the truth was presented to him. And he hardened his heart against that truth and then God hardened his heart so he could not even believe the truth anymore. So important to understand what the Bible says. Listen to this. So important. First Thessalonians chapter one. Paul says, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. His choice of you. When he chose you from eternity past, when eternity intersects with time, he calls you to himself. And that call is an irresistible call. It's called irresistible grace. And I am compelled to come to Christ. I don't come to Christ kicking and screaming. No, because he changes my heart. He changes my will. He changes my mind that I might come to him and fall before him because I want to be with him. Because if he didn't do that, I wouldn't. We cry about God's justice. Listen, if God was just, he only acted in justice, nobody would go to heaven. If God only acted justly, nobody would go to heaven. But because God in his justice shows mercy and grace and love and kindness, and because he's a perfectly righteous God, he chooses some to be saved. Now let me Let me kind of blow your mind a little further here. We know that we're chosen in him. The Bible is very clear about that. In fact, over in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Please understand this. If you miss anything, make sure you don't miss this. You are saved for one reason and one reason only. You are saved for Christ's sake. You are not saved for your sake. Philippians 1, verse number 29 says that. Paul says it very clearly. He says, for to you, It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. For Christ's sake, you have been granted the gift to believe. Your salvation is not about you. In today's world, we think everything's about us. God did this for us. God loved me because of who I am. God loves me. God likes me because of what I do. Mm -mm, Mm-mm, mm-mm. 
God loved you before you ever were. A person. He loved you in eternity past. He never loves you based on what you do. But why are we, why do we believe in him? For his sake. Not for our sake. You see, salvation is all of God. We must understand this. It's all about God. He grants us the gift to believe. He grants us the gift of faith. He grants us the gift of grace. The gift of repentance are all gifts that God grants to those whom he's chosen. And they then are able to turn from their sin, believe in what he said, because of the grace of Almighty God. Now listen to what the book of Titus says. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Do you know why Paul preached the gospel? Paul preached the gospel so that those who are chosen would be saved. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9 says that. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9, Paul says, Verse number eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now is revealed, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Paul says this in Titus 1. He says, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot lie, but you were chosen by God, and he made a promise long ages ago, or literally before time began. Let me ask you a question. Who did God make a promise to? Who does God make a promise to before time begins? Who exists before time begins? God, who cannot lie, made a promise. To who, pray tell? Well, go back to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. And Paul tells us. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9. Recall with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, or same phrase used in Titus 1, from before time began. God the Father made a promise to God the Son that he would have a redeemed humanity. He would redeem a bride for his son. 
God made a promise, God the Father made a promise to God the Son that he would redeem, that he's chosen people, that he's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life that will be redeemed for his Son, that will be a bride for his Son for all eternity. So when God said way back in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, why would he do that? Because in the time before eternity, eternity past, God made a promise to redeem a bride for a son. So in John chapter 6, the Lord says these words in verse number 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, God made a promise of a redeemed humanity. And all that the Father has promised to me is going to come to me, and I will never cast them out. That's why he says in verse number 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's it. And then it says this, in John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer, quite astonishing. Verse number six, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me. I manifested your name to the men you gave me. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And the reason the Father draws him is because their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before eternity began. Because they were chosen in Christ because God the Father made a promise to the Son that he'd redeem a bride for his Son for all eternity. So he says, the men that you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. What a powerful statement. And then he says this, verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. But the son of perdition, Judas, said the scripture would be fulfilled. Then he says this, verse number 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Wow. Over and over again, the ones that you have given to me. Eternity past, God the Father made a promise to God the Son about a redeemed humanity. This will be your bride. I've written their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Eternity past. Because you are the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And as lamb, you will die for all those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because you're going to redeem them as your bride forever. The rest, I will harden. And that is a righteous God doing what only a righteous God does. You say, that's just, I just have a hard time grasping that. Listen, 
Your reason and intellect is extremely flawed because you have a sinful nature. You just have to believe what God says in his word. Listen to this. Book of Malachi. Oh, by the way, if you read the Old Testament, God was always choosing people. Remember Psalm 105, verse number 43? And he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. It says later in the Psalms, Psalm 135, verse number four, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Remember Deuteronomy chapter seven? Of course you do. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God says, I've chosen you. I didn't choose the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. I didn't choose the Philistines. I chose you. And the reason I chose you is simply because I love you. You didn't do anything to gain my love because I loved you in eternity past. But I've chosen you over all the peoples of the world. God always operates within the realm of his righteousness, his holiness and his justice. And he chooses whom he wills. So when you read Malachi 1, listen to what the Lord says. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Ooh, people have a hard time with that. You shouldn't. You shouldn't at all. Do you know that in the book of Genesis, God never says he hates Esau? Did you know that? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But he never said in the book of Genesis that he hated Esau. It wasn't until a thousand years later in the book of Obadiah, where God pronounces judgment upon Edom, the descendants of Esau. He pronounces judgment upon them because he would not let Israel pass when wandering in the wilderness. You read the book of Obadiah, it's about the judgment of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Now listen carefully. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We look at that and we think, how can God hate someone? I thought God loves everybody. He does. But remember, this is not speaking to individuals. It's speaking to nations. Esau, listen, Esau represents all the people of the world who choose worldly pleasure over a godly inheritance. Remember when he sold his birthright? 
He sold his birthright because he was only thinking about the world, only thinking about the here and now. That's all he wanted. And the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the Palestinians of today, are those, spiritually speaking, who love the world more than a godly inheritance because Jacob loved the godly inheritance. Jacob represents all those who were chosen in God. Esau represents those who were not. Because they chose to love the things of the world more than the godly inheritance given to them. Damnation happens because God responds to human choice. Salvation happens because man responds to divine choice. So it says, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. You know where Edom resided, right? In Petra, the rose red city of the rocks. And that's where they lived and God pronounced judgment upon them. They made their home in the mountains. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God hates the sin and the sinner. Hates them both. Because they have rebelled against him. They have turned their back against him. And Esau did. And they say, we're going to rebuild our city. And they rebuilt it, but it was brought down to ruins by the Nabataeans who came in and destroyed the Edomite city. Because God will let Israel be restored. And they will rebuild their nation. And they will rebuild their cities. Because God has chosen a remnant of them to believe and follow him. So it says this, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified. That's why we say, how do you know you've been called? Your call commences with God. It begins with him. It doesn't begin with you. It began in ages long ago, it began in eternity past when God made a promise to his son to redeem a humanity for his own. It commences with God. And then it comes only through the gospel when the gospel is presented to you and me. That's why we respond because we don't hate the truth. We love the truth so as to be saved. We hear it. We believe it. Because God, in his grace, granted us the gift of faith, the gift of belief, the gift of repentance, and that's what we do. We respond to him. Because we hear the gospel. Then we respond. It's conceived by grace. Galatians 1, 6, because you were called forth by God's grace. Same with Ephesians, I mean, Galatians 1, 6 and Galatians 1, 15. Both talk about the call of God coming from his grace. It's conceived by grace, and it compels us to be grateful. 
I'm here today to say I am so grateful for what God has done. I am so grateful that he, that he chose me because he makes the unworthy worthy. He makes the unrighteous righteous. He makes the unlovely lovely. He makes the sinner a saint. He makes those dead alive. That's why we, have, that's why we give thanks to God. We magnify his name because we are so grateful that Without this sacrifice, without him giving his life for us, we would have never believed. But he did it for us. We come today to worship the king who gave his life for you and me. No one took it from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. That was the plan. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was a marvelous plan. A plan that only can be enacted by an eternal God. And when we, who are finite, try to wrap our minds around the infinite plan, the infinite mind of God, it will confuse us to no end. But when we read the text and we see what God says, we say, yes, Lord, I might not understand it. I might not even begin to grasp it. But Lord, I believe it because you said it. And I'm thankful so grateful that you chose me, you called me, you predetermined me, eternity past. You elected me to be a son of your kingdom. And for that, I'm grateful. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today. Not able to cover as much as we'd like to cover, but trust we to cover those things that would enable us to understand a little bit more about your calling and choosing of us. Today, Lord, we pray and ask that, Lord, our hearts will be right before you. And that, Lord, because of your great salvation, we just give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we partake of the Lord's table, I want to remind you that we'll distribute the elements to you. Hold on to them. We'll partake of them together. Um, and we will be able to celebrate the Lord's table together. So as the men come down, let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We are so grateful, Lord, that we can come and worship you. We are so grateful, Lord, that we have the opportunity to thank you once again. Lord, we pray our hearts will be right before you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look once again at verse number 15 this morning, simply because there is so much in this verse that it could take us probably many, many months just to unfold all that's here. And so this morning, I want you to look at your life in light of what the verse says. Now listen carefully. So many times... It is easy for us to read a verse, and after reading that verse, we read into the verse what we think we believe, instead of letting the verse tell us what we need to believe. We need to understand that. So many times we read the scriptures through a lens 
that may or may not be correct. The verse must stand on its own in the context of which it was written, in the book in which it was written, in line with the entirety of Scripture. And so as we examine our lives today, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that before you eat and drink of the Lord's table, you are to examine your life. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5, that we are to test ourselves, prove ourselves, to see whether or not Jesus is even in us. No better time to do that than on Communion Sunday. And so when we looked at Hebrews 9, verse number 15 last week, a verse that says, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. We told you last week that a Jewish audience would understand this to some degree. Because on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, they would do it retroactively. In other words, they would do it for the previous year. Because there were so many sins that were committed that every person that was there sometimes didn't know the sins they committed. And so when they offered atonement, it was for the sins retroactively throughout the previous year. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that when Christ offered his one-time sacrifice, he offered it retroactively to all those who were called. In other words, there was a redemption provided for those in the Old Testament that were called. There was not a redemption on Calvary for those in the Old Testament that were not called. Why? Because they were already in hell. You can't purchase them out of hell. They're already there. So he offered uh, redemption for the transgressions of those who were called so that they might collect the eternal inheritance that was theirs from the very beginning. And this becomes a, a staggering thought. It becomes a monumental truth. It, it leads us into the, the depths of the doctrine of, of the living God so that somehow we might begin to understand who God is and, and what he's done. Because we asked the question last week, are you one of the ones that are the called? And how do you know you're one of the ones that are called? And we told you that, it, it, number one, it, it commences with, with God himself. The call of God commences with God. It comes only through the gospel, and it's conceived by grace. We looked at that last week. With that, point number four, it compels us to be grateful. It compels us to be grateful. Listen to what Paul says. And I love what the Lord is doing. Because what we're studying on Wednesday night, last week, ties into this morning, ties into this next Wednesday, ties into next Sunday morning. God in his sovereignty put all these together for us so that we'd be covering these verses at the same time. And it says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, 
Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. You see, there's something that compels me to give thanksgiving to God, to be grateful to him. Why? Because he chose me from the beginning. And he called me to himself that I might experience the joys, not just of his presence on earth, but for all eternity, to be saved from my sin. That's a staggering thought. To think of the fact that God, in eternity past, wrote the names of all those who would believe in him, Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8, in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, we know that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that. And so because he was, he would write the names of those whom he would call because he chose them in the lamb's book of life. And some would say, well, wait a minute. Wait a second. You mean to tell me that God would choose some and not others? Yes. And you would say, probably, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. So let me offend you this morning. You are not the author of fairness. You're not the author of rightness. You're not the author of justice. You're just you. God is the author of that which is fair, right, just, true, and pure because he's holy. So if he is, shall not the righteous judge of all the earth do that which is just? Genesis 18.25. That's right before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The righteous judge of all the earth shall always do right. God never does wrong. And he never shows partiality. And the scripture is very clear upon that. But the scripture is also very clear that there are some that are called, many that are called, but there are a few that are chosen. And we look at that and we hear that, and some of us adore that, other of us abhor that. We hate it. Others love it. But just think about this for a second. We really try to reason all that God does in salvation. We try to, with our minds, intellectually think and digest everything that God said. But let me tell you something. Be aware of this. That when the fall happened, when sin took place in Genesis chapter 3, it affected your ability to reason. It affected your intellect. In other words, you're not as smart as you think you are. And your ability to reason is not really that acute. It's not that sharp. Because it fell into sin way back in Genesis chapter 3. So for us to think that somehow we can reason in our minds what God is doing and how he does it, what's right and what's fair, we got to be very careful that we don't assault the character of God and blaspheme his name because we think he didn't do something right or fair or just or, or true. That very easily happens in Christendom. 
we must be very, very careful. Do I understand that for me to be saved, I must believe the gospel? Yes. That I must repent of my sins? Yes. That I must turn to Christ and take up my cross and follow him without reservation? Yes, I understand that. I have no question about that. Do I understand that, yes, God gave me the power and the grace to believe, to repent, to have the faith to understand and to follow him? Yes. But can I harmonize those two together? No. I can't. I cannot harmonize human volition and divine election. But once I try to do that, I'll mess both of them up. I must learn to rest in what God has said, and that be enough. I must believe what God says in his word. I can't take my belief and put it into the scriptures. I must believe what the scriptures say. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. We must not only believe the scriptures when we happen to agree with them, we must believe them when we do not. We must believe them when we do not understand. And if at a point they seem to us to be saying something that implies that there is unrighteousness in God, we say at once, that is impossible. There is something wrong with me. See that? If I think that God's unfair or God's unjust or God's not right, Guess what? That's my fault. There's something wrong with me. Nothing wrong with God. He's very pure, true, and holy. So when I read a verse like Hebrews 9, 15, and I realize that our Lord credited, credited forgiveness toward Old Testament saints, that they might have full access into the presence of Almighty God. Once he died on Calvary's cross, he could forgive them because he was a righteous God, knowing that the blood of bulls and goats never takes away sin. And yet God could forgive those people on credit that he had called to himself because he would die for them on Calvary's tree and then give them full access into glory like he would all of us. This side of the cross. That's just staggering to realize the magnitude of God. And so I'm not going to be able to reason with you this morning. Pastors should never reason with anybody. We don't do that. Why? Because our reason is flawed. Your reason is flawed. Why would I do something that's completely sinful and flawed? Why don't I just let God's word speak for itself? That's all I have to do, let God's word speak. And then you're held accountable, and I'm held accountable, to what God's word says. So let me show you what God's word says. We know that 2 Peter 1.10 says we are to make certain of God's calling and choosing of you. We know God called us because God chose us. The reason he chose us is because in eternity past, he predestined us to be sons in his kingdom. He wrote our names down in the Lamb's book of life before we ever existed. 
And so therefore, we trust in what God says. And so when the Bible says these words in Matthew chapter 11, verse number, yes, Matthew 11, I know this verse, I drew a blank, verse number 27, sorry, says this. We'll start with verse number 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Nobody knows the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal Him to them. It's impossible. That's what the verse says. Interesting, what's the next verse say? Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have divine election in one verse. You have human volition in the next verse. And the two are mirrored together in Scripture as you read through it, but yet so impossible to harmonize in our frail, fallen minds. Many are called, few are chosen. Listen to what it says in John 10, verse number 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. I know my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Acts chapter 13, verse number 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. They rejoiced because as many as had been appointed, had been predetermined, believed. They rejoiced in what God was doing. If you go over to Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was afraid that he was the only guy left. And the Lord says, hold on, Elijah. I've got 7,000 others just like you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have a remnant that I am saving, that I have called, that I have chosen. So Paul says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's grace, gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Wow. Those who were chosen obtained eternal life. But those who were not, God hardened their hearts. Remember what we said on Wednesday night? If you missed it, too bad. If I'm going to repeat it to you, all right? In damnation, God responds to human choice. In salvation, man responds to divine choice. And that's the way it always is presented in Scripture. Always presented the same way. And why do people Go to hell. They go to hell, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse number 8, because they do not know God and they will not obey the gospel of God. Why do they go to hell? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because they do not love the truth so as to be saved. It's not that they don't know the truth. They do. It's not that they don't know God. They do. Romans 1. Everybody knows God and everybody knows the truth. They just suppress the truth. But the reason they don't come to Christ is simply because they don't love the truth. Why did you come to Christ? Because you love the truth. The truth incarnate and the truth inspired. You can't separate the two. You love the truth. How great is that? And so Paul says there's a remnant. Because we know that all Israel is not going to be saved, right? We know that God is going to allow some of them to perish. But salvation is of the Jews. And Paul is speaking about a remnant that he's called out for himself, that he's chosen for himself. And those he didn't choose... He hardens their hearts. Like Pharaoh hardened his heart when the truth was presented to him. And he hardened his heart against that truth and then God hardened his heart so he could not even believe the truth anymore. So important to understand what the Bible says. Listen to this. So important. First Thessalonians Chapter 1, Paul says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. His choice of you. 
when he chose you from eternity past, when eternity intersects with time, he calls you to himself. And that call is an irresistible call. It's called irresistible grace. And I am compelled to come to Christ. I don't come to Christ kicking and screaming. No, because he changes my heart. He changes my will. He changes my mind that I might come to him and fall before him because I want to be with him. Because if he didn't do that, I wouldn't. We cry about God's justice. Listen, if God was just, he only acted in justice, nobody would go to heaven. If God only acted justly, nobody would go to heaven. But because God in his justice shows mercy and grace and love and kindness, and because he's a perfectly righteous God, he chooses some to be saved. Now let me let me kind of blow your mind a little further here. We know that we're chosen in him. The Bible is very clear about that. In fact, over in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Please understand this. If you miss anything, make sure you don't miss this. You are saved for one reason and one reason only. You are saved for Christ's sake. You are not saved for your sake. Philippians 1, verse number 29 says that. Paul says it very clearly. He says, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. For Christ's sake, you have been granted the gift to believe. Your salvation is not about you. In today's world, we think everything's about us. God did this for God loved me because of who I am. God loves me. God likes me because of what I do. Mm -mm, mm -mm. God loved you before you ever were. A person, he loved you in eternity past. He never loves you based on what you do. But why, are we, why do we believe in him? For his sake, not for our sake. You see, salvation is all of God. We must understand this. It's all about God. He grants us the gift to believe. He grants us the gift of faith. He grants us the gift of grace. The gift of repentance are all gifts that God grants to those whom he's chosen. And they then are able to turn from their sin, believe in what he said, because of the grace of Almighty God. Now listen to what the book of Titus says. Titus chapter 1. 
Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Do you know why Paul preached the gospel? Paul preached the gospel so that those who are chosen would be saved. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9, says that. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9, Paul says, Verse number eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now is revealed, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Paul says this in Titus 1. He says, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot lie, but you were chosen by God, and he made it promise long ages ago, or literally before time began. Let me ask you a question. Who did God make a promise to? Who does God make a promise to before time begins? Who exists before time begins? God, who cannot lie, made a promise. To who, pray tell? Well, go back to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. And Paul tells us. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 9. Recall with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, or same phrase used in Titus 1, from before time began. God the Father made a promise to God the Son that he would have a redeemed humanity. He would redeem a bride for his son. God made a promise, God the Father made a promise to God the Son that he would redeem, that he's chosen people, that he's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life that will be redeemed for his son, that will be a bride for his son for all eternity. So when God said way back in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, why would he do that? Because in the time before eternity, eternity passed, God made a promise to redeem a bride for a son. So in John chapter six, the Lord says these words in verse number 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, God made a promise 
of a redeemed humanity. And all that the Father has promised to me is going to come to me and I will never cast them out. That's why he says in verse number 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's it. And then it says this. In John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. Quite astonishing. Verse number six. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me. I manifested your name to the men you gave me. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And the reason the Father draws him is because their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before eternity began. Because they were chosen in Christ because God the Father made a promise to the Son that he'd redeem a bride for his Son for all eternity. So he says, the men that you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. What a powerful statement. And then he says this, verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished. But the son of perdition, Judas, said the scripture would be fulfilled. Then he says this, verse number 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Wow. Over and over again, the ones that you have given to me. Eternity past, God the Father made a promise to God the Son about a redeemed humanity. This will be your bride. I've written their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Eternity past. Because you were the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And as Lamb, you will die for all those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because you're going to redeem them as your bride forever. The rest, I will harden. And that is a righteous God doing what only a righteous God does. You say, that's just, I just have a hard time grasping that. Listen, your reason and intellect is extremely flawed because you have a sinful nature. You just have to believe what God says in his word. Listen to this. Book of Malachi. Oh, by the way, if you read the Old Testament, God was always choosing people. Remember Psalm 105, verse number 43? And he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. It says later in, The Psalms, Psalm 135, verse number four. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Remember Deuteronomy chapter seven? Of course you do. It says, 
For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God says, I've chosen you. I didn't choose the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. I didn't choose the Philistines. I chose you. And the reason I chose you is simply because I love you. You didn't do anything to gain my love because I loved you in eternity past. But I've chosen you over all the peoples of the world. God always operates within the realm of his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. And he chooses whom he wills. So when you read Malachi 1, listen to what the Lord says. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Ooh, people have a hard time with that. You shouldn't. You shouldn't know. Do you know that in the book of Genesis, God never says he hates Esau? Did you know that? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But he never said in the book of Genesis that he hated Esau. It wasn't until a thousand years later in the book of Obadiah where God pronounces judgment upon Edom, the descendants of Esau. He pronounces judgment upon them because they would not let Israel pass when wandering in the wilderness. You read the book of Obadiah, it's about the judgment of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Now listen carefully. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We look at that and we think, how can God hate someone? I thought God loves everybody. He does. But remember, this is not speaking to individuals. It's speaking to nations. Esau, listen, Esau represents all the people of the world who choose worldly pleasure over a godly inheritance. Remember when he sold his birthright? He sold his birthright because he was only thinking about the world, only thinking about the here and now. That's all he wanted. And the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the Palestinians of today, are those, spiritually speaking, who love the world more than a godly inheritance because Jacob loved the godly inheritance. Jacob represents all those who were chosen in God. Esau represents those who were not because they chose to love the things of the world more than the godly inheritance given to them. Damnation happens because God responds to human choice. Salvation happens because man responds 
to divine choice. So, it says, And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. You know where Edom resided, right? In Petra. The rose-red city of the rocks. And that's where they lived, and God pronounced judgment upon them. They made their home in the mountains. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God hates the sin and the sinner. Hates them both. Because they have rebelled against him. They have turned their back against him. And Esau did. And they say, we're going to rebuild our city. And they rebuilt it, but it was brought down to ruins by the Nabataeans who came in and destroyed the Edomite city. Because God will let Israel be restored. And they will rebuild their nation. And they will rebuild their cities. Because God has chosen a remnant of them to believe and follow him. So it says this. Your eyes will see this. And you will say, the Lord be magnified. That's why we say, How do you know you've been called? Your call commences with God. It begins with him. It doesn't begin with you. It began in ages long ago. It began in eternity past when God made a promise to his son to redeem a humanity for his own. It commences with God. And then it comes only through the gospel when the gospel is presented to you and me. That's why we respond because we don't hate the truth. We love the truth so as to be saved. We hear it. We believe it because God in his grace granted us the gift of faith, the gift of belief, the gift of repentance, and that's what we do. We respond to him because we hear the gospel. Then we respond. It's conceived by grace, Galatians 1, 6, because you were called forth by God's grace. Same with Ephesians, I mean, Galatians 1, 6 and Galatians 1, 15. Both talk about the call of God coming from his grace. It's conceived by grace and it compels us to be grateful. I'm here today to say I am so grateful for what God has done. I am so grateful that he, that he chose me because he makes the unworthy worthy. He makes the unrighteous righteous. He makes the unlovely lovely. He makes the sinner a saint. He makes those dead alive. That's why we have, that's why we give thanks to God. We magnify his name because we are so grateful that without this sacrifice, without him giving his life for us, we would have never believed. But he did it for us. We come today to worship the king who gave his life for you and me. No one took it from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. That was the plan. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was a marvelous plan. A plan that only can be enacted by an eternal God. 
And when we, who are finite, try to wrap our minds around the infinite plan and infinite mind of God, it will confuse us to no end. But when we read the text and we see what God says, we say, yes, Lord, I might not understand it. I might not even begin to grasp it. But Lord, I believe it because you said it. And I'm thankful, so grateful that you chose me, you called me, you predetermined me, eternity the past. You elected me to be a son of your kingdom. And for that, I'm grateful. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today. Not able to cover as much as we'd like to cover, but trust we would cover those things that would enable us to understand a little bit more about your calling and choosing of us. Today, Lord, we pray and ask that, Lord, our hearts would be right before you. And that, Lord, because of your great salvation, we just give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.